The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make it principle to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit. We have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity, if necessary, to confess your sins in privacy to God the Father. 1 John 1, 9 makes it clear and simple. If we confess, which means to simply admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whenever we sin, it immediately has an effect on our family relationship with the Lord. We are saved and we can never lose our salvation. But when we do commit a sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit, quenches the Holy Spirit. And so it's necessary to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 to recover fellowship and then uh, move forward in the spiritual life. So we'll just take a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace, your undeserved and unmerited favor and goodness to us, that when we were still sinners, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for us, and that through his death we have eternal salvation. Not only did you send your Son, Jesus Christ, as the living Logos, the living Word, but you have given us the written Logos, the written Word, to teach us how to think, to teach us how to live, and to teach us, above all, about you and your love for us and your character. Now, Father, you have also placed in us your Holy Spirit who guides and directs us, helps us to understand your word that we can apply it in our lives. We pray that we can concentrate this morning as we study your word, that under his teaching ministry we might understand these things and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and we'll have a little review of what we covered last time, and then we will move on into the grace doctrine of giving. 
But a little review is in order just to make sure we remember where we've been and why we've been there so we can go forward. Now this passage begins, this verse begins, And let the one who is taught the word, that's the congregation, share all good things with him who teaches. Of course, underlying this is the principle that it is a sort of a barter system that just as the pastor feeds the sheep and takes care of their spiritual needs and nourishment through the teaching of God's Word and has that responsibility, the imperative mood of the verb here means that the congregation has a reciprocal responsibility to financially support the pastor and the person who feeds them and nourishes them from the Word of God. Now, as we saw this last time, just to break down and review the uh, grammar a little bit, the exegesis, now one thing we always do is recognize that what we have in the English is a translation of the original New Testament, which was written in Greek. It's the original New Testament that is inerrant, that is the inspired Word of God, and it is not the translation And translations are always subject to the theological assumptions and framework of the translator. And I had an opportunity to, this last week, the reason we postponed Bible class or moved it back this last week was that I was up in Boston attending the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, which was the first time I'd had the opportunity to do that since I was in seminary. You know, I think a couple of times it met in Dallas. And it's a um, basically the members of the Evangelical Theological Society, or most of the, uh, while there are a number of pastors who are members, most of them are professional theologians and academicians at seminaries, uh, Lutheran, Baptist, uh, maybe some Methodists were there, independent Bible church reform, Presbyterian. Uh, it's a wide spectrum of theological and ecclesiastical orientation. And they all affirm the only thing they all have in common is they believe the Bible is the written Word of God. That's the simple, bottom-line doctrinal statement. They're fairly conservative, and there are many conservatives there, and there are many people whose name you would recognize who are there. I, I ran into a number of men that I met for the first time whose books I have read over the years, and they are some of the premier scholars and, and writers and authors in uh, Christianity today, and that was somewhat interesting to see that. And I attended a number of different workshops, or not workshops, but they give papers. Men have worked on some specific area, some technical problem, and they give a, read a paper, which is a real test in my concentration, because, I mean, some guy just stands up there and he's got a very detailed technical paper and he reads through it. No eye contact or very little eye contact, and when you just do this hour after hour all day long, it's a real test of concentration. Some of the rooms in the hotel room had the heat jacked up all the way. So I know how you feel sometimes like this morning. I think it's a little warm in here. And uh, one room I had on a wool sweater and an overcoat because it was, what, 30 degrees outside, and I still had that on. And, I mean, I'm just trying to shed whatever I can, and so is everybody else. But it was an I- interesting time. And uh, what I learned there was that, that we, we live in an age when, when people don't do what the Scriptures say to do in regard to the teaching of the Word of God when it comes to a pulpit ministry. 
they've just forgotten the thrust of this passage. See, we see here that in the opening verb, it talks about giving, and it's the Greek verb koinoneo. Looks like this in the Greek, K-O-I-N-O-N-E-O. And it means to participate or to share or to give, and in this context, it means to share one's possessions, and it indicates a kind of joint participation and mutual interest. And the issue here is that the, the person who is taught the word, that is the congregation, is supposed to share with the one who teaches the word. But the word for teaching here is very precise. It is not the Greek word um, didasko, which is a general word for teaching. It is a different word indeed. It is this word, katekeo. K-A-T-E-C-H-E-O, from which we get, of course, our English word catechism. Now, the difference is this can refer to simple instruction as a general term. If we were to use something like a, remember those wonderful Venn diagrams you hated when you were in um, school in, in arithmetic? Well, if you did it like this, this outer circle here would represent the broad general concept of didasco. And a more specific category of teaching would be katekeo. It's a subcategory. It talks about a specific way to teach. And it talks about a, it means it is a detailed and systematic form of instruction. A detailed and systematic form of instruction. And as I said last time, the way we express that here is that we believe in what is called an ICE approach. Now, I don't use this term a whole lot, but we, we've used it here a lot, and it's, I find it somewhat functional. The I stands for the word isagogics, and that refers to historical background, that, that the Bible was written from 1500 B.C. up to through about 95 A.D., so over a period of approximately 1600 years, you have the Bible written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, you have it written by a vast number of different people from different cultural backgrounds. Moses was raised and trained to be the pharaoh of Egypt. You have uh, farmers like Amos, in, uh, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, in Israel, and he was a more of a rural background. You have uh, more educated men like Daniel, who was the second highest person in the in the Persian or in the Babylonian, and then in the Persian Empire, and you have. People like the Apostle Paul, who was trained to be a rabbi. He was from Turkey. He was, um, had a tremendous education, one of the greatest educations available at that time. You have writer like Luke, who was a, a trained physician as well. So he had a high degree of education. Matthew was a tax collector. So you have men coming from a variety of different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And so you, we have to interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written. We have to understand who these men were, what their culture was, what their vo the vocabulary words meant to, at, to the reader at that time in history in order to be able then to make a transfer to what this means to us. If we don't take the time to understand what the author meant when he wrote it, then whatever we do in terms of application is, is, is useless because it may not have anything to do with what the author originally intended. And this, too, is a great matter of debate because a lot of people think that it doesn't really matter what the author meant. See, as soon as you do that, you lose your absolute control. 
if it doesn't matter what the author meant, either the human author or the original divine author, an interpretation means, well, I can just read it and ask the question, well, what does this mean to me? Then the, uh, the whole issue of interpretation becomes subjective. And you've all experienced that. Remember those courses you took in high school or maybe college when you had to do poetry? And you would read the poem, and the teacher would read the poetry and tell you what it meant, and you'd scratch your head and go, how in the world did they ever get that out of that? Well, that's what happens, and that's what has happened in, in, in terms of the whole study and science of interpretation across the board in our culture since the early 19th century is we have located absolute truth inside of us instead of outside somewhere. And so if the absolute truth and the final authority is, is a humanist, comes from a humanistic philosophical orientation, then the final authority for knowledge is what is, is inside of us. And so we look at something and we say, oh, well, I think this means, and therefore that becomes the meaning. Now, of course, we can't operate like that very consistently in the real world because we would all be in jail by April 30th for failure to pay our income taxes. You see, there's all, reality always has a way of bringing people back to the fact that, that, that we have to live in God's world according to certain establishment principles. But the unbeliever and the rebellious believer constantly seek to avoid the, the reality of the mandates of the Word of God. And so you, there are always these systems to try to reinterpret the text. The C stands for categories. In categories, what we do is look at all of the information and data in the Scriptures and we classify it according to subject matter. For example, the issue in this passage is going to be giving. So last time we looked at the concept of tithing in the Old Testament and saw a number of things about tithing that indicated that the whole concept of tithing does not relate or apply to the New Testament church. It was a system of taxation related to Israel. See, we went back and we did our isagogics, our background studies, and we looked at Israel at the time in which it was written, and we saw that it had a form of government called a theocracy. Under a theocracy, God is in the executive branch, and His decisions and His administration is carried out by a priesthood. The Levites and the priests carried out that work, and the Levites and priests, as the, as the bureaucracy and administration of the kingdom of God, the rule of God expressed in the theocracy under the Old Testament economy meant that they had to be supported financially. So there was one system of taxation calling for 10% for the support of the priests and the Levites. And this was paid every year and it went into the storehouse, which was, which was in fact the temple treasury. That's why in Malachi 3 when it says bring your tithes to the, to the storehouse, it's talking about bringing your tithes to the treasury and this was all, all the money was distributed from the uh, central distribution point of the central sanctuary in Jerusalem, which is the temple. So we looked at the theocracy, and we saw that as a theocracy, there were two kinds of citizens in Israel. There were believers, and they were unbelievers. But the tax applied to everybody. So everyone, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, was required to give 10% of your income for the support of the national government every year. That's just simple taxation and has nothing to do with spirituality. So we're looking at the, we looked at tithing as part of the category, and then we'll look at the doctrine of grace giving today. And then we have the third category here. The E stands for exegesis, which is the use of grammar, 
which is looking at various parts of speech, syntax, which is how those parts of speech relate to one another in the sentence, and extracting, and then you also look at word meanings, which is lexicography, and you do your lexical studies, and then from that you extrapolate the meaning of the text. You derive it from the Scriptures. You have to interpret the Scripture in light of itself and in light of Scripture. And that's what Paul means when he says, the one who is taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches, the person who teaches in this style. And it is amazing what is happening in this world. One of the great things that I I, I personally enjoyed at this conference was the fact that I ran into some very old and very dear friends. There are about six or seven of us who um, have known each other for, well, I've known Randy Price since we were just out of high school, and now Randy is one of the premier writers on archaeology and Old Testament studies. He's now just published his, I think it's about his sixth or seventh book. It's about an inch and a half thick on the the, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. And he is, uh, in fact, one day, I think it was Thursday, uh, Randy Price and Steve Sullivan and I, Steve Steve is on faculty down at College of Biblical Studies in Houston. I've known Steve since, since seminary. And we had lunch with Dr. Ken Barker, and Dr. Barker was the, I think he was the uh, executive director of the translation committee for the New International Version. He was also the head of the the Old Testament department when we went through the Old Testament. We were all three Old Testament Hebrew majors at Dallas, and he was the head of the department at the time. And I remember about 22 years ago, the three of us were sitting on the front row, uh, Dr. Barker's biblical archaeology course. Now, 22 years later, we're having lunch with him, and he's asking Randy questions because Randy has gotten now has his Ph.D. from University of Texas, and he's just had a dig in, an archaeological dig transferred to his authority over in Israel, and um, so it was exciting on, on that basis. And then there were two or three other guys from the Houston area who are pastors there, and we were just talking about what's happening in churches across the board. Now, Houston is a major metropolitan area; it's fourth largest city in the country, in one of the largest metropolitan areas around. There are, uh, I think there's, there's 20, 30 different Bible churches. Now, back in the 70s and 60s, there were maybe a half a dozen Bible churches, and they were all fairly sound. They, they were not dissimilar from us. They clearly taught the Word of God to one degree of depth or another, but they were very solid doctrinally and they were devoted to really to substantial content-oriented teaching of God's Word. Outside of, of course, Baraka Church where, where I was when I was down there and where I grew up, now there are only two other churches in the area that even Bible churches that come close to having a content-oriented teaching ministry. Every other Bible church down there has gone into this church growth craze this uh, seeker service on Sunday morning, that somehow we have to design our Sunday morning services so that any stranger, any unbeliever who comes into the church uh, is comfortable. In other words, we're going to, and it's all started with a guy in Chicago who started church there. It's now the largest church in the country. And he went out and he surveyed all the people in the neighborhood. And he took their, why don't you go to church? What is it that you dislike? What makes you feel uncomfortable when you go to church? So he surveyed people who are operating on human viewpoint, who are unbelievers, who do not know spiritual truth whatsoever. 
and he took into account all of their likes and dislikes, and then they designed a church service so that unbelievers could feel welcome and comfortable when they came to church. And, of course, the point of the Scriptures is that we should not, people should feel uncomfortable when they come to church because they're hearing the truth of God's Word, which they've never heard. They should see a difference. That doesn't mean that you're trying to make them uncomfortable, but you hear the truth of God's Word and that there's something different here. This is not like everything else in society. The music is different. The words are different. The meaning is different. The way people conduct themselves... What they do is different. That should be, it is the truth of God, it is the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God operating on the truth of God's Word that should be what attracts them, not because they find music that is not dissimilar from what they listen to on the radio and and drama and activities, etc., that's not dissimilar from what they hear on the radio. And so I am amazed, and and I, I was told by... By one of the men there, it's interesting, I ran into Harry Leaf, and Harry, Harry and uh, I have done many things together over the years. He ordained me 20 years ago, and then Buck Anderson was there, who's now the academic dean, vice president of the College of Biblical Studies, and I remember teaching Buck Greek in my living room uh, about 15 years ago, and then he went to Dallas Seminary, Now he, and then I ordained him. He was sort of an education director, assistant pastor for me, and uh, now he is Harry's boss at the College of Biblical Studies. So just, I mean, we're, I thought, gosh, we're an incestuous crowd. <laughs> we, we just all hang together and, and, and encourage each other and focus on content. But Harry was telling me of one church in, uh, in Houston that used to have a reputation for solid doctrinal teaching. And now they have a pastor. And if that, he told me, he says, I've heard that if that pastor goes over 30 minutes, if it is one minute past noon, People start getting up and walking out. This is where we have come in this country. I had lunch another time with two professors from down here at Capitol Bible Seminary. We had, or whether we had dinner together Thursday night. And I asked them because, of course, you, you all know Dan. And Dan has had trouble finding any kind of a content-oriented Bible church down there. And there are a number of so-called Bible churches now in the D.C. area, and many large. But again, they're all following this church growth seeker service, kind of singing lots of 30 minutes worth of contemporary songs. Churches have given away all their hymn books. They don't uh, hold to good content-oriented singing anymore. And I asked him, I said, tell me one church in the northern Virginia, D.C., southern Maryland area that uh, I can recommend to Dan as a place to go where they haven't caved into the pressure of a sort of a quasi-postmodern interpretation of the church. And they just kind of looked at each other and scratched their heads and thought for a long time, and they finally came up with one possibility that was about an hour's drive north of D.C., So that just lets you know that we are living in an age when people would rather have their ears tickled. That's the phrase that Paul used in 2 Timothy, that in the last days people would rather have their ears tickled. They want to be entertained. They want to have their glands stirred. They want to have their emotions stirred. They want to come away and just say, oh, don't you feel closer to God? The criterion is how they feel, not what they learn about God. Objective truth no longer has a place in the worship of God, and yet that has been the driving force in Christianity for hundreds of years. We are to learn how to think as God thinks. We are to learn everything that God has said to us 
And the only way to do that is to submit ourselves to academic discipline, to the regular, consistent teaching and learning of God's Word. It's just like anything else in life. If you want to be good at it or successful at it, you discipline yourself to read about it, to learn about it, and to make it a priority in your life. If you were to go to the doctor tomorrow and that doctor were to tell you basically that you had uh, maybe a year or so to live and that doctor would use several words that you may never have heard before in describing your disease, you would make it a point to go to the library on your way home and start looking up those words, checking out books that had to do with this disease so that you could find out as much as you could. You would go to uh, great links to learn about what was going on inside of your body so that you could make the right decisions in relation to the rest of your life. And yet when it comes to Christianity, the most significant thing in our life, which is our relationship to the Lord, because it will impact eternity, the sad thing is that most people today think that you need to communicate that in only one or two syllable words, and you need to emphasize a lot of emotion so that when people leave, they're just, they just feel better about things. They don't learn anything. Obviously, we don't want to scare people off by using words like omniscience or immutability or uh, doctrine of divine decrees or theology proper, Christology. We don't want to scare people by letting them know that there's actually a reason to think about Christianity. In fact, another odd little thing that happened on this was that as I went into the hotel Thursday morning, you know, the Lord just does unusual things in our lives and puts us in with people we don't ever expect. Here I am at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, and I'm, going, I'm in line to eat breakfast, and I'm waiting for the uh, hostess to come and take me and seat me at the table. And the restaurant's full because there's 1,200 people here at this conference, so they're just packed. And I'm standing there, and, and I, I was really unaware of who was behind me, but there was a young lady behind me, and uh, the uh, hostess came up and said, well, are you two together, do you mind sharing a table? And I said, no, no, that's okay, we'll just share a table. So we went over, and we sat down, we shared a table, and I introduced myself to her. She introduced herself to me, and she was, the repres- she was a visitor at the uh, meetings, and she was the formal representative from the Church of Scientology. So I said to myself, Lord, my, 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 you must want me to witness today. So we, uh, and and that that was very interesting because I felt like this girl has been, she's out here primarily because she is sort of a liaison with the evangelical community trying to make sure that as people in cult groups and write books about cults accurately represent what the Church of Scientology believes. And she's been doing this for three or four years, and I, I just found this as, out as I talked to her, and I scratched my head, and I said, you know, she's been hit with the gospel by every fundy she's talked to over the last couple of years, so I really have to approach this from a different perspective. I can't just start shooting at her with the gospel because she's had that happen, so I need to just ask her a lot of questions. And so things developed over, over time, and, and um, I got an opportunity to 
to reinforce the gospel. I think this may be one of those cases where somebody hears the gospel over and over again on years. One person plants, another waters, another waters, and eventually the Lord uses that to bring them to salvation. But it was, it's just we never know what is going to happen, and that can happen to any one of us. You go over to somebody's house, and they bring their their brother, their sister, their cousin, their next-door neighbor in, and they're in this group or that group, and yet God has placed you there to communicate the gospel to this unbeliever. And if you aren't doing your homework as a believer by being involved in a local assembly that is categorically teaching you the Word of God so that you're prepared, then what happens is you miss the blessing and the privilege of being used by God in that witnessing situation. And if you don't have a content-oriented ministry and a content-oriented teaching ministry, then you don't know a thing about what you believe. And there's nothing, I think, more damaging to us than to be in a situation where we're put on the spot and we just sit there and go, Duh, I don't have a clue what to say. I mean, that was what hit me the first year I went to college, and I was in a Western civilization class, and the professor was up there saying that Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, because they didn't even have writing at that time. And he had all this argumentation for why uh, Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch, and it was really written by three or four different redactors, one who was a priest, one who was the Yahweh's J for Yahweh. It's called the JEDP theory. And I had no clue how to answer any of his things any of his objections, and in fact, I did get the opportunity to challenge him with the truth on that about 20 years later, but as we've seen in our study of John, presuppositions control people's approach to facts, and even though the originators of that JEDP theory originated it in the 1830s, 1840s, and at that time, archaeology had not discovered the fact that writing predated Moses by several thousand years, the... um, uh, even though the facts now completely undercut the theory, the theory is still taught as fact in many college classrooms. And yet people have to be prepared. And where are you going to get prepared? Where are your kids going to be prepared to go into a college classroom where their Christian beliefs are going to be attacked if they're not prepared in a local church? It just seems so obvious to me, except there are very few pastors and very few churches who have a philosophy of ministry that is built primarily on teaching, now it's built on emotional stimulation. So all of that is why the text says in Galatians 6.6 6, that the, the teaching ministry is katikeo, not simply didasko. It is categorical, systematic, detailed instruction. Now all of that is by way of review, plus a few anacoluthans to let you know what went on this last week. Now, we studied the doctrine of tithing, and just by way of quick review on tithing, so that we can get into um, so that we can get into grace giving. We saw last time that ta- that tithing means ten percent. Sometimes in some, in our religious milieu today, in many legalistic churches, they've come to use the word tithe as a synonym for giving. Tithing doesn't mean to give. Tithing just means 10%. It's an old English word that just means 10%. And we saw that there were three 10% taxes on Israelites. The first two were every year. 
These were annual. And then the third was just every third year. The first one supported the Levites and the priests. The second one was for the worship of God in Jerusalem. And it was directly related to the gross national product. And they were to have a tremendous national celebration in Jerusalem every year to celebrate the grace of God. And God had told the Jews that if you obey me, I will bless you materially. If you disobey me, I will curse you materially. And so this was their annual barometer litmus test to determine whether or not they had been obeying the Lord. If they had a great uh, uh, year of financial prosperity, then, they, then their 10% would be large and they would have a, a tremendous party and celebration. But if God were cursing them and they were in financial recession or depression, then there would not be much money for the national party and it would be visibly evident how they were doing spiritually every single year. See, God used very concrete ways to teach spiritual truth in the Old Testament. Why? They did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They did not have the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they did not have the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So God's teaching could not get too abstract. He kept things very visual and concrete. And it's not until the New Testament that you begin to develop much more abstract doctrines where you have the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things. So we saw that there was a mandated giving, which is equivalent to taxation. It was for believer and unbeliever alike, and therefore tithing had nothing to do with the spiritual life. And then there was a free will offering also in the Old Testament. And this is for believers, and it was related to their worship of God. And so there's two categories. Now, when we come over into the New Testament, we find that you still have these same two categories. This one now, because we are no longer in the national entity of of Israel, that God has, that we're in an age, the church age, that is called an intercalation or a parenthesis in God's program. Israel was founded nationally and ethnically with the call of Abraham. Israel as a nation lasted until 70 A.D. when they were taken out under divine discipline because of their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. God gave them another 40 years of grace to change their mind, what the Bible calls repentance, simply means to change your mind about Jesus Christ and accept Him because they failed even after 30 years of, or 40 years of extended grace, God eventually took the nation out and destroyed it as a nation with the Roman armies came in under, under Titus and, uh, and wiped out the Jewish army, destroyed the temple, took, completely tore it down so that no rock was left standing on another. So Israel ends as a national entity at 70 A.D., but it will be restored to the land, and when Jesus Christ comes back in the air... In the clouds, at the end of this age, all church-age believers will be instantaneously taken to be with the Lord in the air. This is called the rapture. Rapture comes from the Latin word rapto, which means to snatch or take away, to, to lift up, and it takes place instantaneously. It's a translation from the Greek word used in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They were caught up. 
to be together with Him in the clouds. Now, this age in between, starting really on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D., this age here is the age in which we live, and this is the church age. Now, the church age, the institution that is responsible for the dissemination of doctrine and for proclamation of the gospel is the church. In the church, the scripture says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave, for we are all one in Christ. In other words, ethnic distinctions, economic distinctions, sex distinctions do not apply to the church age. Now, the reason I use sex distinctions instead of gender distinctions is because if you read your older dictionaries, the word gender did not refer to sexual identity until the feminist movement of the 1960s. You read dictionaries before that. Gender is a grammatical term. As my Greek professor used to say, people have sex, words have gender. But the the, uh, feminist movement did not like using the word sex, so they wanted a more neutral, scientific-sounding word, so they picked up the word gender, robbed it from its linguistic grammatical categories and now everybody misuses the word and I refuse to cater to the agenda of the feminist society so I don't like using gender to describe a person's sex. So, there is no sex. See, all those things, ethnic distinctions, economic distinctions, whether you were a slave or whether you were free, and sex distinctions all affected your worship. See, women could not go into the inner courtyard of the temple. A slave could not go past a certain point in the temple. But in the church age, these distinctions are wiped out. We are all equally priests to God, members of the royal family of God and royal priests to God, replacing Israel during this age. I don't like using that word, replace. We are temporarily, see, what's happened is covenant theology says, well, Israel ended period and the church is the replacement. That's called replacement theology, and that's what undercuts covenant theology. But that's just for those of you who know what I'm talking about. Um, You've got to watch these little words all the time. Things have, words have meaning, and you don't want to get caught in a trap by using the wrong word. The church is, there's a parenthesis here, God restores Israel during the tribulation and finishes out the age of Israel. There will be a literal Israel in the land, a literal people. There will be a restored temple. It will not be a regenerate Israel, although in that context, that's when the 144,000 who are literally Jewish from the 12,000 tribes. I attended one paper. The new thing now in prophecy studies is the idealistic interpretation of Revelation. We laughed about this because this means, well, three and a half years can mean a thousand years. And a thousand can mean two. Whatever, how do they come up with this stuff and and the interpretation of all these signs? It's like mumbo jumbo shamanism that I'm just going to, you know, stay up late two or three nights in a row and not eat. And then I'm going to read Revelation and just decide what all these symbols mean. And yet that's what some scholars are coming up with now. It's just called the idealism. Everything represents something and there's no literal control on the interpretation. It's crazy what's going on today. So we have the church age. This is where we are today. And in the church age, there is no national government Israel. The tithes were all designed for the support of the nation Israel and to go to be paid to the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., 
So if you want to pay a tithe, you no longer have a nation to pay the tithe to. You no longer have a temple to take the tithe to. And there is no longer a Levitical or priestly bureaucracy to pay the tithe to support. So not only that, but I don't think there may be one exception or two in here, but I don't think any of us are Jewish. So since the Mosaic Law never applied to Gentiles, but only to Jews, then the tithe has nothing to do with us. But that does not mean that we as church-age believers are absolved from letting go of our hard-earned cash. Oh, how dearly we like to hold on to our money thinking it is ours. But everything we have, the talents that we have, those were given to you by God. The spiritual gifts that you have, the physical talents, the natural talents, that all came from God. The air you breathe, the food you eat, that ultimately came from God. The fact that you have a job. If the Lord decides tomorrow that you need to learn this principle and you get a pink slip tomorrow, that's because the Lord realizes you need to learn humility and that the reason you have a job is because of His grace. See, everything we have comes from God. Every dollar in our bank account comes from God. God is the one who, Scripture says, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so we have to understand this principle that just because we live in an age dominated by grace, that there was still grace in the Old Testament. Grace does not mean we have no responsibilities. Grace says that we have responsibilities and obligations, but that our spiritual life, indeed our salvation, is not based upon doing that. In other words, you're not going to get saved or your salvation will not be threatened if you fail to give. And I introduced this word last time, that grace entails obligations or responsibilities. I use the word obligations because it it really catches our attention. And the illustration I like is if I were to give you a brand new BMW, that would be your car. Sign the title, it goes over to you, it's your car, you own it, you possess it, it can never be taken away from you. That is your car. Yet it entails the very fact that you have ownership of this new car entails responsibility. You're responsible for putting gas in it, for having it tuned up, for putting oil in it, changing the oil, uh, for keeping it washed and clean, and all of those things that ownership entails. But that was not part of the bargain. I didn't say, I will give this to you if you take care of it. I said, I'm giving it to you. It is now yours, but it entails responsibility. If you fail in your responsibilities to take care of it mechanically, it won't do you any good. It's still your car, but now it just sits in the driveway. Because it won't run because you never change the oil or check the oil and the engine locked up on you. And that's what happens with most people in Christianity. They are given a spiritual life, but they never learn what, is their, what are their obligations and responsibilities for taking care of it, i.e. the imperatives of the New Testament. They never learn what those responsibilities are, so they never change the oil. They never... Uh, confess their sins, they never learn doctrine, they never renovate their thinking according to the principles of God's Word, and so their spiritual life does them no good. They still have it, they're still regenerate, they're still justified, they're still going to spend eternity in heaven, but their relationship with God, their position in the royal family of God, all of the divine assets that God has given us at the point of salvation do them no good. And so grace does not mean you get away with not giving. Grace means that you still have that obligation. But there's no longer a specific percentage associated 
with that. This leads us then to the doctrine of grace giving. Point number one. Giving related to the spiritual life of the believer has always been based on grace. We saw that even in the Old Testament. There was the free will offering. So giving related to the spiritual life of the believer has always been based on grace. An Old Testament passage for this is Proverbs 11:24. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more, and there is one who withholds what is justly due. This is the tightwad, the Scrooge complex, spiritual Scrooge complex, but it results only in want. Let's uh, retranslate that a little bit, get the implication. There is one who scatters, that is one who gives abundantly, generously. That's what grace giving is all about. God says, I gave you my son. I gave you my son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and went to the cross where not only did he suffer unspeakable and unimaginable, unimaginable physical torture, but for three hours he suffered the kind of excruciating pain because perfect righteousness had all of our sins imputed to it and this, the pain, the suffering, the misery that the Lord Jesus Christ went through on those three hours on the cross when his, his perfection met our sin is absolutely unfathomable by a creature. And God says that's the standard for giving. So giving is based on grace, is generous, abundant. There is one who scatters, that is one who gives abundantly, and increases all the more. That is now the, the health and wealth gospel, guys. See, what they take is the idea that if you give, Scripture says, if you give abundantly, God will supply. What it doesn't say is if you give abundantly, God will return that supply in kind. See, they think that it's in kind. So if you give 10, 10 or $20, God will restore it a hundredfold, which means what an investment deal. You put in 20 bucks and God will give you 2000 Well... a consistent, regular, abundant, generous giver, however that expresses itself and expresses it financially, it may return to you a thousand different ways, none of which is financial. The issue isn't giving to get. When you give to get, you are not giving, you are just being selfish with your money and you want a good investment plan. And that has nothing to do with grace giving, it's false motivation. There is one who scatters, that is one who gives abundantly, yet increases all the more. God will take care of you. God will supply the what is needed to give in the spiritual life. And there is one who withholds. This is the one who is a tightwad and doesn't give, and it results only in want. See, people want to hold on to their money and think that, that oh, now I'm going to do better, and yet it has the opposite effect. There's only one way that we are blessing to... Uh, uh, what, what this passage is saying is that one way in which we are a blessing to others, blessing through association, is through grace giving. A New Testament passage that teaches this is 1 Corinthians 16.2. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, where Paul tells the Corinthian believers, On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside... And save. Now this is, this verb here in 1 Corinthians 16.2 is the present active imperative of tithemi. T-I-T-H-E-M-I, which means to put or place, to set aside, to put up, to determine, to appoint. 
And what Paul is saying here by putting this in the present active imperative is that as we have seen over and over again, when you hear present imperative, by now you ought to be thinking standard operating procedure for the spiritual life. That God is saying that this is supposed to be a standard operating procedure. Now, if grace meant you had the option to give or not to give, then Paul wouldn't be expressing this to an entire congregation saying, let each one of you put aside. We scratch our head and say, boy, Paul, you're just getting a tad legalistic maybe telling each one of us to give. No, he's not. He doesn't tell them how much. He just says this is a principle for the spiritual life. There's a responsibility in the congregation not only to take care of the local congregation, not only to take care of the pastor-teacher, not only to take care of the physical needs of the buildings where you meet, because that allows... And let me tell you, I have been in a church where we had to rent a place. We could only get it on Sundays, and that church, eventually it made it because they got out of that situation. But while I was pastoring that church, we had problem after problem after problem, and we couldn't really get anywhere spiritually because we only had a place to meet one day a week. And if you think that you can grow to spiritual maturity listening to doctrine for one hour a week, then you are sadly in self-deception. You need a whole lot more, and I do too. We need daily inculcation of the Word of God. So, Paul says here, in this background, the historical scenario was that he was, he was going to come through Corinth, and he wanted to have a collection of money available to take back with him to Jerusalem in order to distribute among the believers there because there was a major famine going on, an economic recession back in Israel. So Paul says, I'll be there eventually. And instead of you know having everybody come up with all that money at one time, you need to consistently, weekly, put aside the first of each week a certain amount of money, each person to determine how much they're going to give, and save it up and then... Uh, I will pick that up when I come through. Notice he says, On the first day of each week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. See, that's in place of 10% or 20% or 30%. It is a matter how much you give and how much I give is between me and the Lord. And that is a decision based upon uh, prosperity, how the Lord has prospered us, what he has provided for us, and that it is in turn... Giving is related to gratitude to all that God has given us. So this does not mean that giving is optional or that the financial support of a local church is optional. It means that that is still mandated. The amount is not mandated, though. So you determine how much you give based on two factors, how much you appreciate the grace of God and how much the Lord has provided for you. That means that we will obviously have a change in how much we give as we grow in our uh, grace and knowledge of the Lord. Because as we learn more doctrine and realize more that the Lord has done for us, then our gratitude, our response is going to be transformed. So point number one was the giving in the spiritual life has always been based on grace, not on some kind of legalistic definition of how much you ought to give to be spiritual. Point number two, let's define grace giving. Giving in the spiritual life is an expression of your worship to God to commemorate His grace in your life. Let me say that again. Giving in the spiritual life is an expression of your worship to God to commemorate His grace in your life. 
Now that means that you have to have a certain attitude towards the money you give to the local church. And that means that it's your money and you have something to say about it as long as it's in your hand. But once it leaves your hand and hits the grace box in the back by the back doors, you don't have anything more to say about it. That's what grace means. Grace means you recognize that the leadership of the church is going to make decisions and sometimes they will make decisions you do not agree with in terms of the prioritization of how they spend money. And that is always true in every church, every organization, every evangelism organization, every missionary organization. There are going to be times when those in position make mistakes. Why? They're sinners. That's why we deal with them in grace. The issue is to provide the financial resources for the support of the ministry. As long as that ministry is teaching categorically the Word of God, is teaching a grace gospel, and people are growing and you are growing, then that's the criterion for supporting that ministry. Just because something happens, and I told the story the last time about a church I was in at one time where a number of people were dissatisfied in leaving, and one guy said, well, I put so much money in this church, I'm just going to stay around to see how it's spent. (laughs) And I thought, you know, you never understood the principle of grace in terms of your money. You want to control how that's spent, and that's part of the problem why you and all these other people are wanting to leave the church is because you've never understood grace. So the definition of grace giving is giving in the spiritual life is an expression of your worship to God to commemorate His grace in your life. Point three, giving in the church age is related to your position and ministry as a royal priest. As a believer, you are a member of the royal family of God. At the moment, at the instant, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, which is non-experiential, so you didn't learn about it till you read your Bible, you are entered into union with Christ. As part of that union with Christ, you are adopted into the eternal family of God. You are a member of the royal family of God. And two things happen. You become a royal priest and a royal ambassador. Now, a royal priest relates to your relationship to God. A priest was someone in the Old Testament through whom people came to God. Your ambassadorship has a horizontal dimension and is directed to other human beings. So priesthood is oriented to God. Ambassadorship is related to people. So in terms of of, uh, priesthood you have certain responsibilities such as prayer and giving and learning Bible doctrine, the Word of God, so that you can grow and mature. As an ambassador, you have a responsibility to witness to unbelievers. You have a responsibility to encourage other believers plus a number of other factors, including Christian service, operation in the uh, local church in some category. And in fact, I think we still need some folks to uh, uh, volunteer under the category of royal ambassador to teach Sunday school second hour, right, two-year-olds, two- to three-year-olds, as well as the fifth to seventh grade. This is a function of Christian service. Now... All of these factors are going to be the consequence of spiritual growth and not the cause of spiritual growth. This is something that I think a lot of Christians get backwards. They think that my spiritual growth will be enhanced if I pray, if I give, 
if I uh, witness, if I encourage people, if I get involved teaching Sunday school, that that helps me grow spiritually. No, that you're getting it backwards. You grow spiritually by learning the Word of God under the filling of the Spirit of God and then applying it under the ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And as you advance and mature in your spiritual life, the result of that is that your prayer life develops, your giving develops, you advance more and you become more consistent in learning doctrine, you become more responsive in witnessing situations, you encourage other believers because now you have some doctrine to encourage them with, and you get involved in Christian service. So that's the result of spiritual growth, not the cause of spiritual growth. So as a member of the royal family of God, there are certain obligations placed upon us as a royal priest. So we have an obligation, number one. Number two, we have an obligation of service in relation to uh, our royal ambassadorship. Third, we have an obligation in relation to our royal priesthood. And then another arena is an establishment arena that we have responsibilities as believers in relation to our national uh, government and to support our local nation through military service or law enforcement, political involvement. And I say that and excluding political activism, not political activism, but just political involvement through voting, getting involved in different issues at the local level. So all of this is related to responsibilities that we have as believers. So giving, we see, is a function of our royal priesthood and is part of our ministry there. Point number four. The first obligation is to financially support the source of spiritual sustenance. When it comes to giving, that's the priority. It's the local church. God ordained the local church. He didn't ordain mission organizations. That's a parachurch, called a parachurch organization. I'm not saying they're not necessary, not important, or they shouldn't be supported. I'm saying they're not the priority. The priority is the local church ministry, and we support a ministry and all that it can be and could be because of the financial resources. And it's in, in this day and age, it's becoming more and more expensive and costly to run ministries because... As the whole culture changes, everyone feels the pressure. I ran into about five guys now who are all using, gone, moving to like PowerPoint projections. We saw that with Tommy here. More and more technology because the culture around us is so used to certain things and to a certain level of quality that they get at the job and everything else that if they come to church and they come to church and you're operating at a pre-1950s level, and everything they, else they see in their culture is operating using modern technology, then that has a very negative uh, uh, aspect to it. I'm not saying that that's what should drive us. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that the church should always be forcing itself, moving towards excellence and quality. It is the church of Jesus Christ, more than any other group or organization in history, that should be at the cutting edge of development. We should be setting the standard for society and culture, not the other way around. So the church should be the place where people go to see how things ought to be done. Excellence in communication. Excellence in every category of life. That should be the standard in the local church, and too often it's mediocrity. And one of the reasons is it's an enforced mediocrity because the financial resources just aren't there. So we have to realize that 
that any ministry, whatever it is, in order to sustain radio ministries, video ministries, internet ministries, tape ministries, whatever, unfortunately, and I hate, I, if you knew me, I, you know how much I hate talking about money. I never mention it. This is the first time in the last two weeks I've even addressed giving in the year and a half since I've been here because I just don't like to talk about it. But the sad reality is that everything that we do runs on the almighty buck. But God provides what is necessary in order to accomplish His will. So point number four simply stresses the point that the primary obligation is to the local church as opposed to other organizations. Point number five, failure to give indicates a failure to understand the principles of grace and the doctrines of the faith rest drill. Failure to give indicates a failure to understand the principles of grace and the doctrine of the faith rest drill. In a sense, it's antinomianism applied to the Christian life. Well, somebody else will give. We've all used that excuse. Somebody else will carry it. And the sad reality is usually 10% of the people carry, it's the old 1090 rule or 2080 rule, 10% of the people in a local congregation carry 90% of the load, financially and work and everything else. That's just reality. And unfortunately, in some cases, it's legitimate because God has not prospered. Remember, that's a principle that we're to give according to how God prospers us. And in some cases, people can't give a lot because they don't have a lot. But in other cases, people don't give because they just aren't dealing with the realities of the responsibilities of the Scripture. Failure to give indicates a failure to understand the principles of grace and the doctrine of the faith rest drill. So in grace giving, the issue is motivation, not the amount. This is point six. In grace giving, the issue is motivation, not the amount. The difference between a tithing system is that that is a legislated amount based on a false understanding of the Old Testament. In grace giving, the issue is trusting God and simply responding in gratitude to the grace of God. See, what happens in many ministries is the, the, the folks trust a legalistic system because if I stand up here and say every one of you has to give 10% and I enforce that, then I can go home and I can, I can uh, pull up a website on the Internet and I can figure out what the, uh, what the mean income for this area is and then I can extrapolate from that what 10% should be and then I can say if I keep emphasizing 10%, then I can say, okay, then these people ought to be given X number of dollars and I can go set up a budget and start spending it. And I can have a level of security. But if I say, no, it's your responsibility, it's between you and the Lord, it depends on your gratitude to the Lord, I have no idea how much money you're going to give. And uh, it may be enough, it may not be enough, it may be what I think it ought to be, it may not be what I think it ought to be, but I have to rely on the grace of God, and the church has to rely upon the grace of God, and it's just a matter of trusting the Lord. So you can either trust the Lord or you can trust legalism, uh, I would rather trust the Lord. Well, we're about out of time, and I still have to go through the critical passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So we will come back after the Thanksgiving break to go through some further developments and finish up the doctrine of giving and see how Paul expresses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you that you have given us the greatest gift of all, and that is the gift of the Savior. For God, you so loved the world that you gave your only, your unique Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the issue is that if anyone is here who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, the issue is never how much you give.
The issue is how much you receive of the grace of God. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The scriptures are very clear that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your grace this morning and how that should impact our thinking and our lives. And as always, Father, we know that the financial resources of this church are totally dependent upon your provision and your grace, and we just rely upon you to meet those needs. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.